Good morning. The text this morning is the first 10 verses of Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, The gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deals only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Father, I love you and I thank you so much for this text of Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. I praise your name, I exalt your glory, and I pray that you would help us now to press into the details of these things, to understand what's being said, and to grow from what's being said. Father, help us not just to approach this text as an academic statement of a building that existed so many years ago, but please help us to understand the deeper meanings of what you're trying to press into now. I give myself to you now, Father, and I trust in you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, in Hebrews... Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 28, the author teaches us much about the fact that Jesus has become the great high priest of heaven and of earth. And this is very, very great news for us because our sin has become an impenetrable wall between us and God. And unless we have a mediator to reconcile us to God, we will never be at peace with our Creator. So as I have been saying for weeks on end, we must have a mediator. There is no option here. There is no other way to get to God. We must have a mediator. And the great news from heaven is that Jesus has in fact stood in the gap for us and reconciled all who believe to God. And he has done this in a most unique way, for he has reconciled God and man as the one who is both God and man. He's the perfect mediator who created perfect reconciliation. And he was able to do that because God the Father swore an oath over Jesus. He lifted up his hands and said, you, Lord Jesus Christ, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
You, Lord Jesus Christ, are the eternal mediator between God and man, and no one shall come to me except through you. This is the new reality, beloved, and it will endure forever. So that's the beginning of chapter 5 and then chapter 7. And then in the beginning of chapter 8, the author celebrates this truth with this sentence. I I told you we laughed about this a little bit because the author is just so clear when he says, now here's my point. We have such a high priest. In other words, this is a reality. This is not just theology. This is not just a history lesson. This is the new reality that will endure forever and ever. And then in the end of chapter 8, I think he had a heart to show his people his readers, that he was not making this stuff up, but that God himself had prophesied about what he was going to do in Christ hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked this earth. And so he quotes the full text of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where God, under the banner of the first covenant, prophesies about a second covenant which Jesus would come to fulfill. As I said last week, that first covenant was partially dependent on the oath that the people made to God. When they said in response to him three times, they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. All that the Lord has said, we will do. All that the Lord has said, we will do. And in this way, they testified against themselves. In this way, they ended up condemning themselves because they would never be able to do, and in fact, they did not do what they had promised that they would do. So, God promises a new covenant. And this new covenant would be and is, in fact, totally dependent on an oath that God made to his people and sealed with these words. He said it repeatedly. He said, I will do it, declares the Lord. In the first covenant, you said, we will do it. But because of the weakness of your flesh, even if I gave you a million years to succeed, you would never be able to fulfill those simple words. And so I now give you hope. I give you a new covenant. And I say, I will do it for you, declares the Lord. This entire covenant will be dependent upon me. Your hope will be dependent upon me. Your joy will be dependent upon me. And beloved, that's really good news. Because God is dependent, right? God is faithful. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. He has the ability to do it. He has the will to do it. And he, in fact, does it. So in this way, what the author has done now is he's put on the table the two covenants. The first covenant and the second covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant. The we will do it covenant and the I will do it covenant. And now in chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 18, he compares these two covenants in a number of ways. So I'm starting this way this morning because I want you to understand the flow of thought in Hebrews. Hebrews is not randomly constructed. It's very intricately put together. So he starts by exalting Christ as our high priest. He then puts the two covenants on the table as a way of saying God prophesied these things from the very beginning and now he presses into the difference between the first covenant and the new covenant. It will take us six Sundays to work through this section of Hebrews 9.1 through 10.18. And so let's begin by turning our attention now to chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. Central 
to the meaning and the function of the first covenant was this tent or this tabernacle that God had commanded Moses to set up in the wilderness. I know that most of you are familiar with this, but please hear me when I say that everything in that first priestly system revolved around this tent. Everything. You cannot make sense of the first covenant if you don't understand the centrality and the importance of this place of worship, this first tent. It is absolutely central to the whole thing. And that's why the author begins his comparison and contrast of the covenants by turning our attention toward this tent. So notice first of all that in verse 1 he calls it an earthly place of holiness. It's a very important phrase. It is an earthly place of holiness. I think that he called it a place of holiness for two reasons. On the one hand, this was the place where God literally and visibly manifest his glory to his people. And so this was the one place on earth where pure holiness was made visible, albeit in limited measure. So it is a place of holiness because it is the place where God manifests himself. On the other hand, I believe it's called a place of holiness because this is the place where people were required to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins and to pursue practical holiness in their lives. So on the one hand, in this tent, the holiness of God was manifest, and on the other hand, practical holiness was pursued, and so it is called an earthly place of holiness. He calls it earthly, not because it's a a bad thing or a fleshly thing, but because this tent belongs to the earth. This tent belongs to this order. This tent belongs to the first covenant. Despite the manifest presence of God that did uh, appear there, and despite the God-ordained responsibilities that were carried out there, this tent was made by human hands, right? And this tent was, was made with earthly elements. And it was subject to all the things that other buildings on this earth are subject to. So this tent was an earthly tent. It belonged to this earth. It was not the heavenly thing. It was the earthly thing. It was sacred and it had its point, its part to play, but mainly its function was to be a shadow and a copy of heavenly things. Mainly this tent's function was to point away from itself and toward the dwelling places of God in heaven. It was a beautiful place, an awe-inspiring place, but at the end of the day, it was an earthly place. Now most of you know that this earthly place of holiness was divided into two sections. The author here calls it the first tent and the second tent, or the the first section and the second section. This first tent, as most of you know, was called the holy place. This area was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide and then 15 feet high. So get that in your mind. It's not a very big space. It's 30 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. It was made of a a wooden frame, and all of the parts of the frame were overlaid with pure gold. And then that frame was covered with four layers of various uh, cloths or animal skins, the inner layer of which was a mix of scarlet and purple and blue dyed threads that would have been woven together in a beautiful fabric and embroidered with some patterns. It would have been gorgeous. When you walked inside the holy place... This is what you would have seen. Of the four layers, you would have seen blue, purple, and scarlet thread. It would have been stunning, actually. If you were to enter in there, 
you would see the most beautiful blend of these colors along with gold pillars and, and touches of silver here and there inside of the holy place. The holy place contained three items, and I'm going to just mention two of them at this time. We'll talk about the other item uh, in, a, in just a minute. First of all, if you were to enter into the veil that closed off the holy place from the outer courts, you would enter from the east side and you'd be traveling west. So I'm not going to press into the details of that, but that's really important. From the Garden of Eden forward, the directions of east and west are very significant in the Bible. So all I want to do is point that out to you and, and call on you to recognize that when you see it in the Bible. If you read about this tabernacle in the Old Testament, it's very clear that you would have entered from the east and you would have been traveling toward the west. On your left-hand side or to the south side, you would have seen first a golden lampstand. This golden lampstand was unique and holy. It had a central base that would come up from the ground. It had three branches going out to the right and three branches going out to the left so that it would end up having a total of seven branches. On the top of those branches were seven uh, golden cups, almond-shaped cups that would have held the oil for the lamp to burn. And then going down the branches were other of those almond-shaped cups that would have matched the one on top and that would have been a, made of one piece with the whole lampstand. So this one lampstand, a, a main base with three branches on each side and all of these almond cups, believe it or not, it was actually hammered out of one single piece of gold. It would have been an absolutely beautiful and awe-inspiring piece of furniture. So then you turn your attention to the right hand, to the, to the north side of the tent. And there you would have seen what was called the table of the bread of presence. This table was made of wood, but it was overlaid with pure gold. It had a molding around the top, and it wasn't very big. It was three feet long by a foot and a half wide by two and a half feet high. It had four rings that were affixed to it that were made of pure gold. And those rings functioned so that, uh, that these wooden poles that were also overlaid with gold could be fed through the rings. And in this way, the table could be carried from place to place to place. Every Sabbath day, the priests would bake 12 loaves of flat bread. And they would go into the holy place and they would stack these loaves on this table in two piles of six. Every Sabbath day, one pile of bread here, one pile of bread there, six here, six there. On top of the loaves of bread, they would put frankincense as a memorial offering before the Lord. And they would leave that bread there until the next Sabbath day. On the next Sabbath day, one priest would go into the holy place. He would retrieve the old loaves he would put fresh loaves down on that table and then he would retire with other priests to a holy place and together they would consume all 12 of those loaves together in a meal that was specifically designed to remember the covenant that God had made with his people. Please think about this. Come into the holy place. See the symbolism that God is building in this place. Twelve loaves of bread taken out every Sabbath day. The priests would gather around a table and consume the bread as a way of remembering the covenant God had made with his people. So they were not eating this bread mainly to nourish their bodies. They were eating this bread mainly to remember the good things God had done for them. It was a meal of remembrance. 
Now, on the far west end of the holy place, which you would have seen as you looked straight ahead. So on the left, the lampstand. On the right was the table of the bread of presence. Straight ahead would have been a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The curtain hung from near to the top of the tent, so it was about 15 feet tall and it was 15 feet wide. It was also embroidered with scarlet and purple and blue linens would have been beautiful patterns in it but in this particular curtain something additional was added that was very important namely cherubim or angels were skillfully woven into the curtain so when you walked in this probably would have been the first thing that really caught your attention is this beautiful curtain hanging down with these angels looking straight at you And surely they were not there just for decorative purposes. Surely they were there to protect the way into the holy place, into the most holy place. Do you remember when the Lord kicked uh, Adam and Eve out of the garden? He told them to go off to the east. That's no accident that he said, go to the east. And then he stationed his cherub at the east end of the Garden of Eden to guard everybody from coming near to the tree of life. He was guarding the way to the manifest presence of God. And now inside the most holy place, or inside the holy place, right there in this curtain, on the east end of the Holy of Holies, there again are cherubim there, standing as a warning. And they're, they're, they're powerfully warning people, listen, do not come in here on your own terms. Do not come in here without invitation. It is not a small thing to come into the presence of God. And so those angels stood as a loving warning to the people, just as that angel had stood as a warning in the Garden of Eden. Now at this point in the text, you'll see that it seems like the author says that behind the veil, inside the Holy of Holies, were two items it seems like he's saying that the altar of incense and the Ark of Covenant were both inside the Holy of Holies. But this presents a problem because we know from Exodus 13 and other parts of the Old Testament that the altar of incense was actually inside the holy place. It was not in the most holy place. So just look there at Hebrews 9 at the beginning. You'll see the problem that I'm pointing out. But if you were to walk inside the holy place... As I said, to your left you would see the lampstand, to your right you would see the table of presence, in the front you would see the curtain, and right in front of the curtain you would have seen the altar of incense, which was placed close to the curtain, but outside of it. So we have a bit of a problem when it seems that the author is saying that this altar was inside. There are two solutions to this problem. You don't have to turn there, but in Leviticus 16... The high priest of God was commanded to go into the holy place, into the most holy place, once per year. And when he was to go in there, he was commanded to take a censer with coals from the altar of incense, put them in that censer, and bring them into the most holy place with him. And the idea was that the smoke from the incense was supposed to rise and fill that whole room so that the smoke of the incense would cover the Ark of the Covenant and keep the priest from coming into direct contact with God and and dying. And so there are some scholars that think that in Hebrews, the author is actually talking about the censer that did actually come into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But along with many leading scholars, I doubt that that's the case because 
I just can't imagine that the author would mention specifically every other piece of furniture in the tent of God and not mention this most important piece. So we're left with the problem. What do we do? It looks like he's got it in the wrong place, so what do we do? Well, the second solution I think is more persuasive. From the creation of it, the altar of incense was intimately tied into the Ark of the Covenant in terms of its function. And what I mean is this. On the one hand, all of the incense that was burnt upon that altar was but a symbol of the prayers of the people. And the idea was that the smoke of the incense would rise up from the altar, it would make its way past the veil into that place where the presence of God dwelled, and there the holy God manifesting his presence would receive the prayers of the people. As we'll see in a few minutes, this incense was to burn 24 hours a day. So day after day after day, the smoke of the prayers of the people is entering into the presence of God. The, the altar and the ark are intimately related to one another then in terms of their function. And then, as I said, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to take from those coals and actually bring it inside the Holy of Holies so that the smoke, which represented the prayers of the people, would cover the ark and keep him from dying. So when the author of Hebrews says that the most holy place was having the altar and the ark I think he's talking about the connection between their function. They're absolutely and integrally related to one another. And don't think that's a small thing because I believe that even in heaven this is true. Even in heaven there are bowls of incense rising into the presence of God, which Revelation chapter 5 tells us are the prayers of the saints. Even this morning, as we gathered in small groups to pray, you might think that that's a small thing, but God does not. God preserved the prayers that we pray here today and he brings them into his presence as though they are incense burning and going up into his nostrils as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He takes our prayers very seriously. Now, if we were to join the high priest and pass through that inner curtain and go into the Holy of Holies, if we were to go past the cherubim with the permission of God, here's what we would see. First of all, we would see that the structure of it was also made of wood and all of the wood pillars would have been overlaid with pure gold with silver at their bases. We would have seen this inner curtain again with fine scarlet and purple and blue linen. It would have been absolutely beautiful and we would have found ourselves inside of a perfect cube. It was 15 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet high. That's no accident. God made this to be a perfect cube. And if you look at the measurements of heaven in Revelation chapter 20 and 21, you see again that God patterned heaven after this tabernacle, or probably it was the other way around is what the truth is. It is no accident that you're in a 15 by 15 by 15 space. And as you're there taking in all of the glory, you would have seen only one piece of furniture, namely the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark which really is just a word that means a chest or a box, but we'll call it the Ark because that's what it's traditionally called. The Ark of the Covenant was made of wood and it was also overlaid with pure gold, both inside of it and out every single piece of it. 
It had a gold molding all around it with four wings where the two poles overlaid with gold could go through those rings so that it could be carried. But in this case, it was commanded that the poles always be kept inside of the ark. So have that picture in your mind. If you were to walk in there, you would see the box and you would see the poles going through the golden rings. It was not very big. It was three and a quarter feet long by two and a half feet wide by two and a half feet high. And inside of it, there were only three things. There was, first of all, a golden jar that held some of the manna from the wilderness There was the staff of Aaron that had budded when he and Moses were challenged by Korah, but God upheld his authority and his place among the people. And then most importantly, there were the two tablets on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments, or what God called the testimony. These tablets summarized the first covenant that God had made between him and his people. They were the marriage vows, if you will, between God and the nation of Israel. They were the particulars of which God said, I will do this, and the people said three times, we will do it, we will do it, we will do it. So the covenant was kept in the ark, and that's why it's called the ark of the covenant. It's the ark that keeps the covenant. On the top of this ark was something that was very important, very important. It was a cover that was made of one piece of pure gold. It was not wood, it was pure gold. On either end of it was a cherub or or an angel. The rabbis tell us that their bodies were made to look like the bodies of lions, and their faces looked like men. So you have cherubs who are have bodies of lions the faces of men they have two wings both of which are outstretched toward one another the tips of the wings come close to each other but they don't quite touch and the faces of the angels are bowed down toward the cover in honor of the holy one of israel and right there between those cherubims in that very physical spot on the earth that is where god promised to manifest his glory to his people to speak and to lead his people on the earth in a sense god is everywhere and he cannot be contained in a tent but the uniqueness of this one little spot on the earth on top of a cover that was only what three and a half by two and a half Right on that spot, God said, I will visibly manifest my glory to you. That's what makes this area unique. And in this place, God would receive atonement for sins. In this place, God would receive and lead his people. You'll notice uh, in the ESV, at least if you're reading that, many other translations as well, that this cover is called the mercy seat. But in, the more, in a more literal rendering of the language, it really means atonement cover. So the translation is mercy seat, but if you just literally translate the Hebrew and Greek, it, it means an atonement cover. Martin Luther in the 1500s was the first one to call this cover a mercy seat, and the reason he did that, he, it wasn't as though he saw it as a place where God would sit or where the priest would sit. The idea is that this is the place where the power of mercy would reign upon the earth. This was the seat of mercy on the earth. And he was surely right about that. But I would still prefer to just stick to the literal translation of the words and call this cover an atonement cover because I think that that presents such a powerful prophecy of what God was going to do with the first and second covenant. Right with this covenant covering over the Ark of the Covenant, God is screaming to Israel and to the world, you cannot keep the terms of this covenant 
And the only way it will be kept is by the atoning covering and power of the Lord God Almighty. And that's exactly what ended up happening. The one who came not to abolish, but to fulfill that covenant was Jesus Christ. He alone could do it. And then he alone laid his life down in atonement for all the times that every one of us has broken that covenant again and again and again. The atonement cover, in my mind, beloved, is such an amazing prophecy about the way that all of these things would work out. God knew from the beginning of the we will do it covenant, God knew that the days of I will do it would have to reign. Now, I have a lot to say about each of these articles, and in some ways I wish we could take a whole Sunday or maybe two and go with them piece by piece by piece and really see the, the mystery and the symbolism of Jesus in every one of them. I actually spent 25 hours this week in study and in meditation, which is a lot more than I normally give. And the Lord opened my eyes to so many things. I have eight pages of single space written, typed out notes about all these things that I would love to press into the details because I see Jesus manifested in the lampstand, in the altar of incense, the table of the bread of presence, in the ark of the covenant, in the tent itself, in the curtain. I see Jesus manifested everywhere and I see in the word of God, not just in my imaginations. But I want to honor the heart of the author when he says in verse 5, if you'll look there with me, he says at the end of verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now doesn't that just make you feel punched in the stomach a little bit? If If you have a passion for the things of God, you have a passion to press into the meaning of the things that God revealed and the things that God did over the years of time. It just made me feel like, oh, please, please, press into these things. I so long to know what a, what a sacred, inspired author would tell us about the meaning of all these articles of furniture. But I think the reason that he's pressing beyond them is not to say that it would be wrong to think about that, But he's saying there's a more important thing that we have to fix our eyes upon. And it's not the particulars of what was in the tabernacle. It's the function of the tabernacle. What happened inside that tent is more important than thinking about all the articles of the tent. So he doesn't want to distract our attention. He wants to stay focused. And in verses 6 through 9, he presses on to talk about the duties of the priests inside of this tent. And he does that in two stages. Let me, let me begin. I just want to explain to you, there's three or four duties that the priests had in the holy place. I want to explain that to you, and then we'll talk about the duties of the high priest. First of all, every evening of every day, one priest was chosen by Lot to go into the holy place, and the first thing that he would do is to prepare the lamp and light the lamp so that it would give light to that space as long as the darkness reigned. Is a very important way of stating that. He was required to ensure that the light of the lamp burned as long as the darkness reigned. God was very specific. See to it that it burns from evening until morning all the days of your generation. 
The second thing he was supposed to do then was to turn his attention westward toward the altar of incense. And he was to put enough altar or, or, or incense upon that altar so that it would burn all night long. He was required to ensure that this symbol of the prayers of the people never burnt out. And once he had done those two tasks, he was commanded to exit out of the holy place toward the east, and he was never allowed to go back in that place for the rest of his life. The reason is is that there were more priests to serve than there were opportunities to serve. Most priests never got to go inside of the holy place. And those who did were chosen by lot. They went in once, they exited, they never went back into that place again. Every evening, another priest was chosen by lot. And his job was to go inside of the holy place, turn again to the lamp, I mean every morning, no, I'm sorry. In the evening, they light the lamp, they put the incense. When the morning breaks, another priest is chosen by Lot. He goes to the lamp, he snuffs out the candles, he cleans up the candle, the lampstand. He turns to the altar of incense. He makes sure that there's enough incense on it to last throughout the whole entire day. And with that, he exits out of the holy place toward the east, and he's never allowed to go back into that place again. So in this way, the priests were commanded to ensure that the light of the lamp always shone as long as the darkness reigned, and they were commanded to ensure that the incense, which symbolized the prayers of the people, rose up before the Lord twenty four hours a day for all of their generations, which lasted for about 1,400 years. Now, as I've already mentioned, they had one more duty. On the Sabbath day, a priest would enter into the holy place. He would remove the 12 week-old loaves of bread. He would put in 12 new loaves, and then he would retire with his priestly colleagues and they would join in a commemoration meal together and remember the covenant that God had made with them and with his people. Now please look with me at verse 7. We see there that no matter the number of priests and no matter the states of their hearts before God, so no matter how righteous they were, not one of them was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and if they did that, they would most certainly die. We have evidence in the Bible and outside of the Bible when people entered into the most holy place without authorization, and they paid so for doing that with their lives. The priests were allowed to come oh so close to that place where God manifest his presence. In fact, when they were tending to the altar of incense, they would have been about eight feet away from where the manifest presence of God was dwelling. And yet, they were forbidden from coming any nearer than that. They were forbidden from going back behind the veil into the place where the presence of God dwelled. And we're getting closer to the main point here now, so please pay close attention. Only the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, and even he could not enter there whenever he wanted, and even he could not enter there on his own terms. He had to strictly follow the commands of God. He was allowed to enter into the manifest presence of God only once per year. And I hope that we're feeling the weight of that. I know that many of you know this is a fact, but I wonder if you've ever really stopped to feel the weight of what this is communicating. The highest holy man of God in the nation of Israel was only allowed to access the presence of God once per year, and everybody else was excluded. The great kings of Israel were excluded. 
Powerful dignitaries of all types were excluded. Powerful business people were excluded. The prophets of God were excluded. Other priests were excluded. Everyday people like me were excluded. The weak, the lame, the hurting, the destitute, the poor, they were excluded. Only one man could enter into the manifest presence of God, and even he was only allowed to go in there once per year. And to make things worse, as I said, he was not allowed to enter in on his own terms. He had to do this in very specific ways. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. He had to go through many steps And he had to bring the blood of the sacrifice into that place with him to atone for his own sins, to atone for the sins of the people. And he even had to atone for the holy altar and the holy ark because they had been stained by the sins of the people. Beloved, we take God so lightly sometimes. We take him so glibly. I remember years ago I saw this shirt. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. I'm sorry, he's not your homeboy. Jesus isn't my pal. He's not my buddy. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel, high and exalted, holy beyond anything we can imagine. And we may not come into his presence on any terms. God does not take these things lightly. And neither did the priests who served under this system, who were allowed to come, oh, so close to God, but never were allowed to see him face to face. Even the high priest who got to go into the Holy of Holies didn't actually see God face to face because remember, the smoke of the incense had to cover the Ark of the Covenant so that he would not come in to direct contact with God. Communion with God was broken off, beloved. It was broken off. God is not eager for division. God is not eager to make this difficult. God is not eager to stamp on anyone who offends his rules. But God is holy. He's holy. He's holy. And he does not take entrance into his presence lightly. Praise be to God. He reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If it wasn't for that, we would have no hope. But the mercy of God, beloved, never causes God to compromise his holiness. And the point of this whole thing is that the access to God is cut off from man. And that's the conclusion that the author draws in verse 8. Please look there in the beginning of verse 9. The author looks at this system and says to himself, which you could have reached the same conclusion if you're just meditating on the tabernacle and the whole setup of it. You could have reached the same conclusion that the Holy Spirit is saying that by this setup, the way to God is not yet opened. The way to God has not yet been revealed. Yes, in those days, King David and the prophets and others who lived by faith had a kind of intimacy with God. They had a kind of walk with God. They had a kind of relationship with God that as I read the Psalms to this day, especially with David, he inspires me very much and teaches me what it looks like to love the Lord my God. And yet, even with that, there was a separation between him and between them. There was a a lack of intimacy between God and his people. 
Even King David, that great lover of God, that prophet who wrote so many psalms, even about Jesus, even he was not allowed to see God face to face. Even he was not allowed to come into the manifest presence of God and stay there. Beloved, there was a great division. There was a hopeless alienation between God and his people. This is what sin did to us. And the Bible says that the way into this inner tent, the way into the manifest presence of God was closed off as long as that first tent remained. Which I take to mean, as long as the first covenant is in effect, there's no way to have deep intimacy with God. Now this leads the author in verse 10, at the end of verse 9 and verse 10, to again highlight the main weakness in this whole system. We've looked at this before, we need to look at it again. Please look there. He said that the gifts and the sacrifices offered by the priests over and over and over and over again, they could not perfect the consciences of the worshipers, right? These gifts and sacrifices, they could deal with sin at a superficial level, but they could never heal the disease. All of the sacrifices that were offered over a 1,400-year period, which were a lot of sacrifices, nearly uncountable amount of sacrifices. All of those sacrifices were nothing more than a Band-Aid upon cancer, beloved. They could not get to the core. They could not heal the disease. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week. But for now, let me briefly explain why I think these sacrifices couldn't touch the conscience of the worshiper. When a worshiper came to the priest under this system to deal with his sins, he was supposed to bring certain sacrifices which the priest sacrificed on behalf of those sins. But he could never be totally free from them. And why? Because the worshiper always knew that his sins outweighed the sacrifices that were just made for his sins. And how did he know that? He knew that because he knew that the next week and the next month and the next year, more sacrifices were going to have to be offered for his sins. There was never an end to the sacrifices because there was never an end to the sin. The sacrifice was not sufficient for the sin. And so you might offer sacrifices to God today, but after you walk away from the temple, 30 minutes later, you do something else stupid, and now you're guilty before God again. Your conscience cannot be clean when your sin outweighs your sacrifice. If I owe you a million bucks, it's not going to do much for me if I make a payment of a hundred bucks once a month, right? Especially if you're charging me compound interest because I'll never catch up with it. When the sin outweighs the sacrifice, when the debt outweighs the payment, there can be no cleansing of the conscience. So what was the point of all these sacrifices? Well, the author tells us in verse 10, he says that the point was that they were regulations for the body, which I take to mean that they were regulations given to tame the flesh and to train the flesh until the time of reformation came. And that word reformation means the time of setting things straight. So it refers to the time when Jesus would come. It refers to the time of the second covenant. It refers to the time when the fulfillment of all things will come. And between the earlier times and that time, God gave the first covenant to tame and to train the flesh until the day came when these words would rule the universe. 
I will do it, declares the Lord. I will do it, declares the Lord. I will do it, declares the Lord. Those are the words. Those are the declaration of the Reformation, if you will. And only this new covenant, only this new declaration would have the power to perfect the consciences of the worshipers, which we'll see next week when we look at verses 11 through 14. This tent, beloved, I encourage you to spend time thinking about it. I think it's a really good and healthy thing to do all week long. I sat in my study and I sang that song, Take Me Into the Holy of Holies. And I asked the Lord to bring me in there through a holy imagination and by the details that were in the words of Scripture. And I asked him to reveal things to me and he did that. And it was a glorious time of meditation and fellowship with me and the Lord. It was But I want us to understand that this tent, as beautiful and awe-inspiring as it was, was actually a symbol of how distant we are from God. It's actually a symbol of the fact that the way into the presence of God is closed off as long as that first covenant stands, until it gives way to a better tent in heaven, a better high priest, and a better sacrifice of which Jesus is all those things. Now we're going to press into that a lot more next week. Next week we're going to look at the fulfillment of all these things and it'll be a great and joyous thing to do. I hope it'll be a, a hope and joy producing thing for us to do when we see how Jesus is the perfect thing when the tent was only an earthly thing. But for now, I actually want to end today by, by inviting you to enter into the pain and the groaning with me of what this first tent was supposed to evoke inside of us. I believe that this tent was designed to help us see and feel the fact that our sin has profoundly alienated us from God. It was designed to help us see that every system built on the words, we will do it, even when God ordained that system, that system is bound to fail because it is completely impotent and incapable of perfecting our conscience. We are the fatal flaw in the system, beloved. We are weak in our flesh and unable to fulfill our side. And so this tent stands as a testimony against the flesh, really. That's the bad news. And I want to encourage you not to let your soul out from under that bad news too quickly because I think that it's good for us to feel the severity and the weight of the problem between us and God. I think it's good for us from time to time to think about the seriousness of our sin. It's good for us to feel the utter desperation of the fact of what it feels like to be alienated from God. And even if you're the powerful king of Israel, David, and love God with all your heart, you're still not allowed to go inside of there. Feel the tension, the pain, the prophecy of that. Oh, beloved, I think in this life we do all kinds of things to medicate ourselves so that we stop thinking about this pain that we know is in here. We know that there's a significant problem between us and God. And a lot of the pleasures that we pursue are just novocaine to keep us from facing the fact that something is not right. So I just want to invite you, trust the Lord, go before the Word, and let Him help you feel the pain of the brokenness between us and Him. And then there is hope. This is not the end of the story. We'll see this a lot more next week. There is genuine hope in Christ because Christ has in fact come as a fulfillment of all these things and Christ has in fact become the way for us to get to God forever. Jesus Christ came to this earth 
and lived a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled all of the law. And then he laid down his life on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that whoever believes in him, his righteousness comes upon you, his forgiveness comes upon you. And in this case, the sacrifice far outweighs the sins. The power of the blood of Jesus Christ could forgive 10 trillion universes of sin. There is plenty of power for forgiveness. So in him, there is a clear conscience. In him, there is a way to God. And that is the hope that we live by. So again, I want to invite you to meditate on on Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. Let your Father speak to you. And as the weight of alienation lands upon you, then meditate on verses 11 through 14. We'll look at those next week. And let the power of the blood of Christ land upon you as well. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank and praise you for this word from Hebrews chapter 9. Some things are hard to understand. Some things don't seem so relevant to life for us, but this is massively relevant to our lives. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would seal the word that has been preached today. I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would help us to see the, the, the utter beauty of your holiness, the utter devastation of our sin, and the utter uh, joy that is there in Christ who made a way for us to be reconciled to you. Oh, Father, please open our eyes as we meditate upon your word. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for what you'll do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.